Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Hello. And welcome to the Hump Hour of the Hump Day. It's a literati glitterati time where we talk about stories and books and the folks who love them, read them, write them. My name is Mel Fulton and I'm broadcasting to you live from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We've got a huge show for you today. Ali Richards is coming in to talk about her new novel, A Light in the Dark, and Kill Your Darlings editor Susie Garcia is also popping by a little bit later on to talk about the 2023 new Australian fiction anthology, uh, which just came out this week. Also, there's still loads and loads of time for you to subscribe to the station. That's right, it's Radiothon time. Um, A huge thank you to everybody who has subscribed so far, including my esteemed colleagues at Bermuda Triangle Management, Alex Gow and Layla Varela, who just sent in their subscriptions earlier. Um, Please, rrr.org.au is the place to do it. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. I am delighted to introduce to you uh, my first guest on the show this week. Ali Richards' first novel, Small Joys of Real Life, was shortlisted for the 2019 Ritual Prize for Emerging Writers and the 2020 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an Unpublished Manuscript. A Light in the Dark is her second novel. Uh, It's just come out. It's being launched tomorrow night at Readings Carlton. Ali lives in Melbourne and she works as a theatre lighting technician and the book is a beautiful book. It's a coming-of-age story that distills the magic of the theatre and uses it as a backdrop for a nuanced and moving examination of friendship vulnerability and abuse of power. Welcome to the show, Ali. We are so lucky to have you. I'm so lucky to be here, Mel. Hooray. Um, Ali, why don't we start at the very beginning and start with the title of the book. It's called A Light in the Dark, which is ostensibly a reference to the theatre. Can you tell us a little bit about falling in love with the theatre and why it's such an intoxicating setting for a novel? Um, I fell in love with the theatre when I was eight years old. Uh, Like the protagonist of the book, I grew up, there was a little Anglican church at the end of my street where I grew up and they did ballet classes there. And so I went to ballet um, and I really loved it. But particularly, I loved the performing. I loved being backstage. I loved being on stage. um, And I still work in the theatre now. And I still, even if I walk through the backstage corridors, particularly on an opening night, I think it just gives you these like warm tingly kind of butterfly experiences I just think there's you can sort of feel the history when you walk into a theatre which is helped by the fact that a lot of theatres are very old buildings but also you can just feel the stories um, in there which I think is really beautiful but it's also has a lot of darkness in it Um, a lot of things I tried to explore in the book are about substance abuse and mental illness in the performing arts, um, high rates of sexual assault. And it's an industry that I love and also have to reckon with its flaws a lot. And that this book, I suppose, it speaks to all of that. Yeah, it absolutely does. And with such, um, such warmth and such nuance, um, I think something that, I mean, I... We have a lot to talk about. I think where I want to start is um, on that sense of 
that sense of newness, you know, I feel like this is a real love story for Iris, the, the lead character, um, in the sense that she, she really deeply falls in love with the theatre, but you get to follow her as she comes of age and she experiences so many things for the first time. You just spoke to that sense of like buzzing when you go into a theatre space and feeling at once the history, but also the anticipation. Can you talk to us a little bit about like working with characters um, you know, that are coming of age, why that's, why that's important? Um, well, I think that, I mean, in some ways I think all books are about people coming of age yeah. again and again and again and because of the age of this protagonist, I guess it fits more neatly into the, the age that we talk about coming of age narratives with. Um, but I think, so the book, the first half of the book is set in high school, which is when I had the idea and I started writing it, I actually really struggled to find a lot of books that are written for an adult audience that are set in high school. It tends to be more like YA or it might be a long sweeping decades long saga where high school's in there for a little bit. But this book has about 40,000 words where we're in the school year, several years going through the rhythms of it. And I found it quite hard to find examples of that. Yes, but that's, yeah. what, that's what I was asking about. I did it clumsily, but that's 100% <laughs> it. Books that are sent in high school that are for adult readers that are not a young adult reader. Yes. Yeah, it's a really not common thing. I really struggle to find examples of it. Um, but I found it an incredibly rich text. Obviously it's a work of fiction, but like all fiction writers, some experiences are based off my own life. And I, uh, moved when I was 11 years old to a suburb, which would have had like a, I guess you'd say like a class leap in where we moved, although my dad still lived um, on the other side of Frankston, as it's described as in the book. Um, and I'd gone to a public private primary school and then I got a scholarship to go to a private high school and it was the first memory I have in my life of reflecting on class I'd never really thought about it before then which obviously shows I have an amount of privilege um, to have not thought about that in primary school but I suddenly became very conscious once I went into this world of having been lacking um and just the newness and the difference of it of everything all the time it was one of the earliest and most significant times in my life, I think, where I really felt like a fish out of water or at least a fish in a new kind of water. Um, and there's a one bit that I did include in the book that was a real example of my life. Um, my father is a tradesman. He's a house painter. Um, and when I, uh, someone's parent at school once asked me what my dad did and I said, oh, he's a painter. And they thought that I was saying that he was an artist <laughs> like oh. the, and just things like that. So there was a lot of, um, a lot of tidbits and reflections and things that I wanted to include about that experience. It's a fantastic moment in the book, actually, a very telling one and just a fleeting moment where um, where that parent asks if if um, Iris's parent can donate a painting to the school fundraiser and she's like, what? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, it might be able to come over and paint your house, someone's house if they, if they want to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah wow. Um, I mean, I think while we're talking about class and while we're talking about those things sort of opening up, I'd really like to, to pause for a second and talk about the friendship between Iris and Molly because I think it's a really important one in the book. Molly is the person who is from, you know, this sort of um, 
I don't know, well-heeled, you know, upper-middle-class kind of background who befriends Iris. They spend all their time together and they have this sort of... this this beautiful and quite um, natural bond, even from the very, very beginning. And that's a certain kind of love as well, which I think is explored really beautifully in the story. Can you tell us about Molly? Yeah, Molly's my favourite character. I absolutely yeah. love her. And obviously um, the book, you know, Iris goes through a lot of trials and a lot of really hard things in the book so you always have to give your characters some some kind of life raft to cling on to as hopefully you know certainly in my own life you have those life rafts and for me a lot of those have been my friends and I liked exploring the idea of um, Molly and Iris having been friends for a long a long time and seeing how that friendship goes beyond school and I had a lot of fun writing Molly as well um, sort of going back to those class things as well she sort of ends up working for like a, you know, unnamed kind of media website and being really big on Twitter and stuff. And I I love Molly dearly, but I also think she's the kind of person that probably hides under the bed. The fact that she has like a trust fund and acts as though she, like there's a comment she makes at one point being like, oh, screw them, I bet they went to high school, private school and she doesn't like self-reflect on that at all. So I had fun writing her and writing those lines in. Yeah, I thought she was so gorgeous and so lovable and also so flawed in that, in that way. She's d- definitely someone who's cosplaying as a, as a poor bohemian in their 20s and you're like, yeah. oh, yeah, I've, I've met you. I've, yeah, I yeah. know you down at the Edinburgh. <laughs> um, I mean, at the heart of this book and, and the, you know, what moves this book along and what I think you do such a good job of portraying with nuance and with sensitivity is a, a betrayal of power, you know, a, a total abuse of power um, between a teacher and his students in the context of the theatre. And I wanted to talk to you about how um, how you approach a topic like that, I suppose. You know, I think that there's an enormous... We were even talking about this on the show last week, like how important it is um, to engage with literature and to engage with, with fictional stories about very real and true and hot topics Um because they allow us to connect and to explore um, without it being a fact, if that, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, and I think that this book just does it, does it so beautifully. Um, tell us, how? How did you do it? <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's really good to know because it's definitely something I took incredibly seriously that I didn't want to write about something in a grotesque way or a... Um, objectifying way. Um, it's I, not a plot point. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so there is a section in this book where that takes place in a courtroom. And so I did a lot of research. I went to court. I read a lot of court transcripts and things. Um, and I can sort of already hear the Goodreads reviews that will come now from lawyers that will be like, she clearly has never been to court because this is so unrealistic. But I couldn't write that seen to be realistic because that this has been publicised quite a lot recently with sort of Brittany Higgins being probably the most high profile case of it. But the experience for victims in courtrooms is really horrific. You get asked very anatomical, very personal, really horrible questions repeatedly and you get grilled about them in a really horrible way. And I could not, if I had, had written that, it a, it would have been boring. Court is so boring. Um, it's not dramatic. There's a reason they <laughs> dramatise it on TV to be a lot quicker than it actually is. But it would have sort of been like I was holding up a victim and being like, oh, look at this disgusting thing that happened to them. And it, and so I didn't want to do that. So I had to take creative licence in place, I think, to 
try and write something more gently um, while at the same time making sure that I wasn't romanticising something. I didn't want to describe sexual interactions that aren't consensual in any way that made them sound sexy. So there's, it's like a tightrope the whole time that yeah. you're always dealing with. And did you have, um, you know, did you have trusted readers or did you have people who would advise you on sort of the ethics of doing that? Or how do you, you know, when you're, when you're really in the woods and you're writing about these, these, these challenging things and you want to capture what it feels like, how, how, did, you, how did you go about that? Um, I had one trusted reader actually with the more the legal detail and how to find um, – I had a friend who's a lawyer who really helped me write the book in terms of navigating the legal system. Um, in terms of the those questions, I, I, I guess I've just sort of listened to a lot of conversations like this and I read some memoirs by some people and stayed in tune to conversations that were happening about sensitivity and being – being thoughtful in those ways, I didn't hand it over to like an official sensitivity reader or like I never wanted to reach out to a particular victim individually and sort of be like, can you give me the sign off? Can you say that this is okay? Or you don't want to like re-traumatise someone by trying to get them to approve your work. So it was a lot of listening and, um, you know, obviously there's there's quite a lot of about this stuff in the media at the moment and most notably Grace Tame speaks a lot about her experiences so I suppose just being attuned to the conversations that were going on and yeah. Yeah absolutely and I think that there's something that happens in this book um, that is really interesting um, you know that you don't get to read about necessarily in news reportage about um, the way uh or, or you do, you can read about it in news reportage, but not not in the same way about about the way that this kind of abuse reverberates throughout the community and the way that it shapes all of the people who are in um, who are in the community. You know, uh, this teacher is you know is an abuser, is a child sex abuser. Um, he's also somebody who they trust and admire and have crushes on and love. He is somebody who paid the characters in this book attention, gave them compliments as they were coming of age and they were seeking and looking to be empowered. And you see the shattering effects that that has on them later in life when they're like, this person said that I was really talented am I really talented? What was the, what was the deeper meaning behind that? What was the sort of, what was driving this person to say those things? And, um, it also explores all of the interesting and, and really, you know, upsetting relationships and what it does to relationships with people alongside, um, alongside his teaching, if that makes sense. People like Nina and Iris. Nina is, uh, somebody who has been abused by this teacher, they have an awkward relationship already. You see it play out as they get older. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's something I find really interesting about the way that individuals can accept things that happen to them is that from my observation, unless it's like a man in a balaclava in an alleyway who grabs you by the back of the head, people seem to find it very hard to label things as abuse. And obviously in that example, it's objectively a really horrific crime. But I think what is also at play there is that if it is the like person in the balaclava who you don't know, you don't know anything nice about that person. They've never done a kind thing for you. You don't know that they're potentially a good father or a good neighbour or a good colleague. And the thing that is so hard 
to reconcile is that someone can be a good father, they can be a good husband, they can be a good neighbour, they can be a good friend, a good colleague, and they can be an abuser. And Mm. that's the stuff that makes it so hard to believe when these things happen. And there's a sort of an incident of bullying that happens to Iris when she's at school that really upsets her. And she takes it to this teacher and he gives her really kind advice. And that's a nice thing he's done for her there. And he has done a lot of nice things for her. And that's what makes it hard uh, to like all of those nice things that someone's ever done for you don't immediately stop existing once you can recognize something they've done one bad thing to you or maybe several bad things it's actually true that people can be both kind and horrible and absolutely we're so bad at being able to reconcile that I don't know if there is ever any end resolution of reconciling that no well especially when you take the mess of yourself into the situation as well and all of your feelings of jealousy and resentment and you know petty anger and feelings of being insecure and all of those things are layered on top of all of this other behavior and it becomes really tricky to untangle and it's a really I think it's a really important spot for us to for us to sit in and interrogate you know um and and I think that this book really really puts that on the table in a, in a way that's really that's thoughtful you know triple r Ali I'm hoping that you can talk to us a little bit about um writing about substance abuse in in a book and and how you tackle that your main character Iris is grappling with a lot of things she's trying to process uh the grief of losing her mother she's also trying to process these um horrible things that happened in high school she's you know she's 20 and just trying to sort of forge ahead and find a career or find her feet in the theater as well and she's increasingly kind of turning turning to drinking, turning away from her friends and that's having some pretty dire consequences for her. How do you how do you capture that on the page and how do you do it? How do you do it sensitively? Um I mean it just sort of it was such an natural place that I went because of statistics in both sections like victims of childhood trauma are very likely to have substance abuse issues and also people who work in the performing arts are incredibly likely to have substance abuse issues. So I just remember sort of naturally going going there. Um, and it's interesting, I suppose, most sort of books that deal with people in their early 20s and the experience of having a problematic relationship in your with alcohol in your early 20s is usually more about binge drinking, but Iris is a bit more like she'll have a whiskey on her way to work with her coffee in the morning. Um mm. But I suppose I didn't want to I, – I didn't want to make her embarrass her, although I guess she still does some things she regrets when she's drunk. But I, I guess to write about it sensitively, I wanted to show that the pain that she was in and that she was trying. Like often when she was having a drink, she was trying to get up and go to work and she was trying to get on with it in the morning. And I think sometimes – when people, obviously we'd all be way healthier if we didn't drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes or whatever your vice is, but sometimes that one cigarette in the morning or your vape or your weed gummy or whatever you have, that's the thing that's like getting you there and getting you to work. And I'm not saying I want to glorify that or be like it's not bad or anything, but I think that it, I I guess I didn't want to present it in a book that was in the book in a way that was shameful. Um, And then, I mean, she does stop drinking at a point 
in the novel because she sort of has to, but then she takes up smoking. And yeah. I was kind of like, I liked the idea of having smoking being a redemption arc in a book because usually smoking in a book is shorthand for the opposite. So it's like. I thought it was very cute <laughs> and very Gwyneth Paltrow that she'd be like, oh, I'm not drinking. I've taken up this cigarette. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Cool, chicky. I remember being 20. Good for you. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of compassion, I think, in the way in the way that you address it. And it's also a very real experience, you know, grounded in these really concrete places in Melbourne that we know and love and that we've, you know, that we've trodden the halls of many times. Yeah. Um, how was writing Melbourne? I hate saying writing Melbourne as a character, but I'm going to do it. How was it? <laughs> yeah, it was good fun. Um, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of like, th- I had a lot of fun putting in a lot of personal jokes, particularly at work in the theatre. Like, there's tiny little tidbits in there for my old colleagues to find. Like, if an actor says a line or something, it'll probably be a line from a show I worked on. Or mm. if there's like a, a character's name or few little descriptions of people who work at the theatre that I've tried to put in as much as I could. I think the editor ended up taking out a lot of it because she was like, "Sorry, what's the relevance of this?" I was like, "It's an in joke for the Melbourne theatre crowd. Like, they'll all get it." <laughs> It's niche, but <laughs> essential. Um, it's actually really hard to write Melbourne, I've realised, because, because I've lived here my whole – I've lived in Victoria my whole life and I've lived in the sort of inner city suburbs for more than a decade now and I'll just describe things like Sydney Road or Princess Park and things and then you forget that someone from anywhere outside of Melbourne doesn't know what those things are. So you sort of have to like um, ground yourself in it again and look at it and – in a way, lockdown was kind of good for that, I suppose, because I did so much walking. So you start looking at the place you live again and noticing things about it that you often don't notice when you're walking on the way to work or whatnot. Yeah, totally. And I suppose that this book was also written while we were collectively reckoning with, um, you know, the worst time in the world for for performing arts and for theatre especially. You know, it was in the wake of like La Mama burning down. Yeah. And then in you know, peak lockdown where you couldn't work, where there was no performance happening. So it must have been in some ways a challenge but a lovely thing to reflect on on what those things mean. Yeah, it was definitely, I think, um, I mean, the book was always going to be set in the theatre, but I started writing this book in March 2020. Like it was the thing I did when both my jobs announced that they were closing for one month, which Mm. ended up being 11 months. And, you know, what am I going to do with my time? And so, so much love and adoration and yearning for the theatre was was in there. Um, And I was really excited when I thought of the plot point to potentially put the La Mama fire in there, because that's just such a big part of Melbourne, recent Melbourne theatre history. And I had a show that was meant to be on at La Mama a month. We were a month out from opening when La Mama burnt down. So it was like quite a traumatic experience for myself as well. So I was really like, I'm really glad to have put that in print and have it. In, oh my God. Yeah, for memory. Yeah. 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 And for a little bit of healing, I imagine, <laughs> and processing. Oh, La Mama's so healed. It's so beautiful there now. It's just like they've redone it up so that it's got really beautiful facilities it's very accessible they've got really great tech but then it also still has that ethos like it still feels like La Mama so they've done a great job yeah that's so cool I feel like this is an ideal place to plug that if you become a Triple R Radiothon subscriber um, you go in the running to win a double pass to all of La Mama's 2024 primary shows um, oh my god including, all of them yeah that's so great every single one plus you get drinks when you go plus you get a 50th anniversary book so if you 
are a theatre guy and you are listening right now, um, rrr.org.au is a good place to go to be in the running to win that. It's a really good prize. Um, We are almost out of time, my friend. Um, Coming up on the show very soon is Susie Garcia, who's going to be talking to us about the new Kill Your Darlings new Australian fiction anthology, which you are also a part of, side note. But (laughs) um, before we do finish up, I guess I wanted to ask you, and I don't mean to embarrass you, but I read the acknowledgements because I always read them often first. Um, And I feel like this is very much a book... um, you know, we touched on this before, it's a love story and, you know, a love letter to the theatre and it's also like a, a bit of a an interrogation of it as well. Yeah. And and with that in mind, I guess I, I wanted you to, you know, if you can, reflect on who your ideal reader is and what you want them to, what you want them to take from the book. My ideal reader is theatre nerds, like people who are in the, the drama club in high school, people who love like ham fans, people who love Dan Juliet, like they're all the people I want to. They're my ideal readers. But ultimately also I I don't want to put it, um, so many people hate musical theatre, so maybe I'm doing a bad job of plugging the book for people who don't like it. But I suppose at the end of the day I still tried to write a, you know, very human literary story about you know a light in the dark is a very obvious reference to shining a light in the dark which is what the protagonist does as a job but it's also about like finding hope even when life serves you like a good few whacks right in a row um so everyone is my ideal reader everyone yeah, <laughs> should absolutely. buy it and read it do it and if you're a bit scared of musical theater don't be I mean I picked it up and was like I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to go with this and has absolutely sucked in. It, totally. it, and it fades away in part two, so <laughs> it, it goes it in more into the me. background. It, yeah. it compelled me. I'm going to get in the running for that La Mama Theatre um, pass. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ali, for coming on the show today. Um, Ali's book, A Light in the Dark, is available at all good independent bookshops now and also the library. And, Ali, you're launching the book tomorrow night at Carlton Readings, is that correct? That is correct. Excellent. So come on by. Yes, please do. And um, to make sure that they've got, you know, a chair and a glass of wine for you if you're that way inclined, please do remember to register and you can do that via the Readings website. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. It is my pleasure to introduce to you today our second guest, Susie Garcia. Susie is currently the editor at Kill Your Darlings Literary Journal. She has just worked on the fantastic new Australian fiction anthology. Previously, she was an assistant editor at Jed Press, and in 2020, she was shortlisted for the ABA Penguin Random House Australia Young Bookseller of the Year Award. Welcome to the show, Susie. Oh, thanks for having me. Susie, it is so cool to have you on the show, and it is is so so cool to see the new Australian fiction anthology for 2023 out in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the process of getting it to publication? Maybe starting with the submissions process, how people how people pop their stories in. Yeah, sure. So first we have a little bit of a commission window. So I have a remit to commission a few stories. And so I do that quite early. But then after that, we open up for general submissions and um, writers can submit to us um, via submittable. They just need to be KYD members. It's Mm -hmm. one stipulation. Yeah. So that usually happens early in the year. Cool. And how many kind of, how many submissions are you dealing with? Like how many stories are you reading to whittle it down to, you know, the 
dozen or so that are featured in the collection? Uh, hundreds. <laughs> hundreds. Hundreds and hundreds, yes. Yes. And when you're doing this reading process and you're going through all of these stories, um, what kinds of, um, you know, because the book itself, the anthology doesn't have a theme, what kinds of things are you sort of looking out for that strike you? I think I... Um Generally, we just want a good story. So that's like our first baseline. <laughs> and I have readers to help as well. This year we had two um, submissions readers to kind of help the team. Um, in terms of what we're after, I have the previous editions that were edited by Rebecca Stafford as a kind of kind of guide about like general tone and um, things like that. You just get a sense. It's kind of ephemeral. <laughs> mm. I can kind of tell when a story kind of fits in with that bigger picture of what the anthologies are doing. But I think for me personally, we like that line between, you know, literary but also kind of plot driven. Yeah. And so I, I think I'm kind of looking for a story that will hook you in but also is interested in playing with um, language and voice and style. I think I like a stylish story personally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A good story well told and it can be kind of a difficult thing to pin down but you know it when you're reading it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, the book, the collection's got, a, you know, a really wide range of writers with all different levels of experience. Ali, Ali Richards, who was just interviewed on the show previously, is included in here. Andre Dow, who's been on Literati Glitterati, who's got the fantastic book Anum out at the moment. Uh, Chris Flynn is in here as well. Madeline Rebecca, lots of um, Julie Coe, lots of people with, you know, um, up and coming writers, but also people who are a little bit more established. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, uh, I guess, what you noticed happening in the zeitgeist as you were sort of reading through all of these submissions and commissioning them? Were there any trends or any things that were kind of repeatedly coming up that you felt sort of spoke to what was happening culturally? It's my second year as um, the series editor and I think in both these editions we're seeing a turn towards the strange sometimes. Mm. (laughs) Um, Not in all the stories but I definitely think the pandemic may have have a shift in terms of... um, like elements of weird, some kind of dystopian elements coming through or just some shifts in like a lot of surreal kind of moments. And I feel like there's something in the air there. (laughs) Yeah, I understand that. Um, A little bit of, you know, a little bit of anxiety perhaps about the climate and things like that. Also things about tech perhaps. Um, Yeah, spooky, supernatural, um, things that sort of that play with what's metaphysical, what's real. Yeah, the uncanny. <laughs> yeah. Are there are there stories that stand out to you particularly? Was there something that you particularly enjoyed working on or Oh, they're all my babies. <laughs> I it's hard to like um pick them apart like that and I have read them so many times that like the different things appear out of the stories. I think um, we have two writers that are being published for the first time. One of them is Madeline Rebecca, whose story Dip has quite like a um, almost grim but like emotional pull. Mm. And the other one is Hope Love Day, who's 19 and has written this like wonderful story with um, about <laughs> this world where sex exchanges memories, because <laughs> it exchanges memories and it's such like an out there story. But um, for someone so young has kind of um, – created this whole world with this like tilt and so there's something really exciting to me about working with people who have never been published before but then um 
I really love Julie Coe's work, for example. It was like a bucket wish thing to have to work with her. I feel like 10 years ago or so when I read um, Portable Curiosities, she stood out to me as someone who was having a little fun with the form um, and offering like a different perspective in Australian literature, very tongue-in-cheek and so very exciting to work with her. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I mean, I suppose on the surface of things, a title like New Australian Fiction s- sounds like a general catch-all, but when you break it down, you know, words like new and words like Australian have quite a bit of tension in them. And I was wondering if you could speak to us about what makes something new, you know, like what, what gives it freshness and what do you think makes something Australian, you know, it's quite a fraught term at the moment. Like how do we, how do you capture, how do you capture such a broad group? Yeah, I feel like I don't have much to say about it being new in the sense that all these stories are pretty contemporary and so it kind of is e- uh, like that I'll easily just be like, well, they're just new, they're fresh, they are <laughs> like out of the box. Um, in terms of Australian and what that means, I mean we have a story in here by Natasha Hurtanto that is set in Indonesia and is about Indonesian characters and Australia isn't even on the radar and um, um, Natasha is an Indonesian Chinese um, woman who is currently living in Australia her links to Australia are like um, not tied to like citizenship or nationalism and yet in my I think something as tenuous and ephemeral as what Australia means tied to like nationalism is I'm not like that weighted to it I feel like anyone that's here in this land right now can speak to the present moment in this country and so yeah absolutely and and they and they should, <laughs> and they and they should have a platform for those stories to be published. Most definitely, um, I guess. Following on from that, what do you think? Um, these collections, you know, they can be. They're such a great. Well, there's a huge tradition of them. First of all, I mean, I think it's your second year in. Um, in the role editing the Kill Your Darlings collection. But uh, previously Rebecca Stafford uh, edited them and then prior to that I think it was Black Ink who put out the Best Australian Stories collection, is that right? So there's a like quite a long sort of tradition of these annual anthologies of short stories and I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about um, what they provide in terms of, you know, a snapshot of a moment in time about what's happening in the literary world in, in the country. Yeah, I feel like what's so good about these collections and I have found like previous editions of other anthologies and like savers and other secondhand bookshops and it's been interesting to like pick them up and see them as like a little time capsule Mm. um and to get a sense of the concerns of the time and that kind of thing um so in that sense like it's kind of exciting to be able to like capture and curate something of the present moment I think as well they yeah I think it's also interesting to see how the literary world changes. Mm. And so one of the exciting things about um, looking at these anthologies over the time is to see names that appear once and perhaps you don't hear about them again, but there is like a testament to someone's writing career that might have been quite small. But you can also see someone that has established like a career over the long term and has become like a big name. And like getting these glimpses of stories and writers at different stages of their career is also important. I wish we had not just more anthologies but more um, literary magazines in general. I feel like the grassroots stage of the literary world is quite important. I also really like the Canary Press like 10 years ago. That was like a real fun moment in short stories and I feel like, yeah, 
um, more of these things would be better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think not only are they a fantastic platform for writers who are starting out, they're also a fantastic platform uh, for people who are interested in getting into editing and proofreading and getting their foot in the door. Uh, you mentioned before that you had a couple of people who helped you read the submissions. Can you speak to the the broader editorial team and and how they how they came to work on the edition? Yeah, sure. So. Um, this year we had two uh, readers. One was Caitlin McGregor, who was one of our readers last year and had just really great insights. So I'm happy to have Caitlin on board again. And this year we also had um, Mekdes Yaman. Um, we were kind of hoping to get some readers that were living regionally. That was one of like our choices for who we're extending offers to. But also Mech also reviewed New Australian fiction mm. um, on her um on her Instagram and it had all these like interesting, like honest thoughts. And so I could already see that this was someone who would be able to give interesting like structural feedback at an early stage and like um, an unfiltered kind of response to the story was really helpful. So that's how I kind of was able to pick these two people to help with the process. Yeah, fantastic. Um, This is very funny and sounds like I've staged it, but I absolutely, absolutely have not. Uh, While you were talking, I just checked the, um, the Triple R pledge website and just saw Mech's name has actually popped up as a subscriber to Literati Glitterati. So a big shout out to Mech. Um, You've done really great things um, on the new fiction anthology and, um, you know, Stoked to have you as a subscriber as well. Keep those subscriptions coming in. Um, Susie, can you tell us, like, um, I guess you started working as an editor on the collection last year in peak lockdown. You've reflected on this in sort of your introduction to the collection um, and things have sort of gradually lifted and moved and changed. Um, how has that affected your ability to work with the writers? Like how do you how do you work as an editor with them? Still so much is done by email and I feel like the pandemic made that very normalised. Yeah. But, yeah, so I feel like we um, – uh, that's like now a natural part of this job and always has been. Um, one of the good things that has been happened, I've been able to meet some of the writers both mm. like before the launch and like at our launch um, and be able to put like faces to names, which is lovely. I think so much though via um, email has been really um, like an interesting learning curve about how you um, negotiate edits and how you talk about work and develop work and progress it and so it's been a challenge but a great one I feel like sometimes those conversations that happen via email can like make my day sometimes yeah absolutely I mean it's so different it's it's such a I feel like initially it was such a stretch of my imagination because I always pictured people like meeting up for coffee or meeting up for lunch and having these sort of long-winded and uh, and amazing imaginative kind of conversations and and in reality so much of it does happen you know efficiently um over email, quick notes, quick checks, writing on manuscripts. But that can also be absolutely a fulfilling and and wonderful way of staging a connection. Yeah. Yeah, it's meaningful in its own terms. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, you're listening to Literati Glitterati. My name is Mel Fulton. Thank you, Susie Garcia, so much. Susie is the Kill Your Darlings editor and editor of the new Australian fiction anthology, which is out now. It was launched last week. Um, do pick up a copy from your local bookshop if you can, or you can borrow one from the library. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday to 1pm. 
hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.